Hello, and welcome to the Eastern Association for the Surgery of Trauma, TraumaCast series. I'm your host, Dr. Babak Sarani, Associate Professor of Surgery at the George Washington University Hospital. Joining us today is Dr. Mike Rotundo, Professor and Chair of Surgery at the Brody School of Medicine at East Carolina University. I think that all trauma surgeons know of Dr. Rotundo's accomplishments, which include serving as President of East in 2005, and his current roles as Chair of the American College of Surgeons Committee on Trauma and Vice Chair of the AAST Committee on Acute Care Surgery. Academically, Dr. Rotundo was the lead author on the article that coined the term damage control with Bill Schwab in the September 1993 issue of the Journal of Trauma. He has since authored a number of articles looking at the application of damage control strategy in the care of the injured patient from a variety of perspectives. He recently senior authored an excellent review article that summarizes his and others' work on the topic. The article is titled, Damage Control Resuscitation, The New Face of Damage Control, and appeared in the Journal of Trauma, issue 69, pages 976 to 990 in October in 2010. Recently, I've been surprised to find that outside of the trauma community itself, many emergency medicine, intensive care, and anesthesia providers are still not familiar with the history and current status of a damage control strategy in the overall management of the exsanguinating or severely injured patient. The purpose of this podcast is to address these points, and who better to do it than the one who established a career investigating this topic. So welcome, Dr. Rotundo. Thanks, Malik. Let's start by asking you to go back to your days as a fellow. Where did the concept of damage control even come from? You know, I, I think that uh, you know, concepts emerge uh, not from any one single point, but from multiple points. Uh, I think that the environment and the conditions at the time in the late 1980s and 1990s were really challenging us in trauma surgery to look at new ways to manage patients who were having really horrible outcomes. And in patients who had multiple visceral injuries uh, and and had m- multiple sources of uh, a bleeding as well, those outcomes using uh, traditional approaches were quite poor. So we began trying to find another way. And the concept of uh, abbreviated laparotomy had been out there for quite some time, dating back to Harlan Stone in the early 1980s and others. It, had, it was firmly entrenched in the blunt injury patient population for liver injury, and so we began to think about at the University of Pennsylvania and a number of other important places, uh, Kings County in New York and uh, down at Vanderbilt with John Morris and currently Maddox's group and a whole other group of investigators start, started to look at other approaches, other clinical approaches uh, to these patients where um, after initial exploratory laparotomy and control of hemorrhage and control of cam- contamination, uh, the initial laparotomy would be terminated after packing. Some temporary closure would be used, and then a secondary resuscitation would start. When we sat in the mornings talking about these cases from the night before, um, somehow we started calling them damage control patients. My version of the story is is that you know Don Carter, Mike McGonigal, and I were were a television generation uh, kids, you know, surgeons at the time. Uh, we were not in the Navy, though Bill Schwab was, and we remember an old uh, television series called Journey, Journey to the Bottom of the Sea, and every time the submarine got in trouble down there, there was a report from damage control uh, to uh, maintain stability of the ship by doing a, s- a series of repairs. So we started calling them damage control patients, and Bill Schwab, our boss at the time, 
who was ex-Navy, uh, latched right on to that. It seemed to make sense, and so the term damage control stuck. All right. And take us from that, then, to damage control resuscitation. What is damage control resuscitation? Yeah, well, you know, interestingly, I have to go back and tell you that that, that damage control surgery was really an approach um, to these patients that was right at our fingertips. It was about altering the surgical approach to these patients to try to get to achieve a different outcome. We achieved that outcome. We were able to redu- reduce the mortality rate dramatically, and you can see that now in a whole series of studies. That arose out of our frustration with the poor outcomes and the fact that we needed to do something different to try to reduce mortality. Damage control resuscitation now has risen out of frustration around morbidity, around encountering patients now who have suffered from, you know, uh, ventral hernias that are planned, needing reconstruction, a high fistula rate in the long in the long term, and in the immediate term, uh, a high abscess rate, a, a high uh, respiratory failure rate, a high sepsis rate. And so, damage control resuscitation has come from a group of surgeons rooted primarily in the United States military over the last 10 years who said, you know, maybe it's not just the surgery. Maybe achieving lower mortality, lower, uh, lower death rate is not enough. What can we do to reduce the complications? In order to make those kinds of discoveries, I mean, we, we had the violence of the 1980s and the 1990s to achieve that. We had lots of wounded civilians as a result of the activities in urban America during that time frame. In the last 10 years, we've had war, which has provided the substrate for a group of really important investigators who've said, is there another way that these patients can be resuscitated so that a damage control resuscitation approach can be linked with a damage control surgery approach to reduce mortality even more, and more importantly, reduce the morbidity associated with damage control surgery. And so what, what is the strategy? What does it entail? Well, uh, the, the way I like to refer to it would be a resuscitation approach that includes no volume at one stage, low volume at a second stage, and slow volume at a third stage. Well, what does that mean? This is my way to sort of uh, put together um, three separate concepts um, around changing the resuscitation approach to damage control patients, that, that is those patients who are suffering from hemorrhagic shock. The no volume portion of it refers to permissive hypotension, where, again, if you go back to, you know, Cannon and World War I, describing the potential problems with elevating a, a wounded soldier's blood pressure and creating more bleeding, this is about um, allowing a patient who is mentating and has a radial pulse to not get fluids or to get, a, or to get almost no fluid at all until um, they get to a definitive care center wherein the center can start looking at getting them to the operating room to stop bleeding. Um, this, of course, popular, popularized by Ken Maddox and, uh, and Bill Bickle in 1993-94, at least brought to our attention in the early 1990s. It really didn't take hold until almost a full decade later as a result of the concepts from John Holcomb and, and Dubik and others that came out of, of uh, Operation Enduring Freedom and Iraqi Freedom. So stage one for damage control resuscitation, the way I think about it, no volume is permissive hypotension. 
so that you don't raise the patient's hydrostatic pressure, dramatically pop the clot, and create more bleeding. This is based on the concept of intrinsic hemostasis, whereas as soon as you begin, a patient begins to hemorrhage, they do have some mechanisms to elevate their blood pressure. You can see that in swine model clearly. That initial, have a, initial drop of blood pressure after hemorrhage, and then the blood pressure starts to come up slowly when you have vasoconstriction and clot formation. If you raise the hydrostatic pressure at that point, you will pop the clot and, and propagate more bleeding. Why not leave them hypotensive for some period of time while you're on the way to stage two, which is resuscitating them? The low volume or second phase would be a one-to-one-to-one -to -one -to -one or a directed component therapy resuscitation. When they get to the trauma center, you're giving them PAC cells, plasma, and fresh frozen plasma, preferably in a directed way. We could talk a little bit about that. While you're on the way to the operating room, in order to prevent the problems with dilutional coagulopathy, uh, prevent some of the problems that, that, uh, that come up with crystalloid administration in terms of uh, enhancing pro-inflammatory effects, um, and, um, and prevent some of the other problems from the traditional resuscitation that we all did for since the 1960s. Once hemorrhage is controlled, you go to the third phase, which is a slow volume approach where you begin a euvolemic resuscitation, replenishing crystalloid in small amounts, bringing their, the red cell mass up to where it needs to be, completing the directed component therapy of fresh frozen plasma, cryoprecipitate, and platelets as needed. Hopefully, again, that's directed, and get them to a point of hemodynamic sufficiency without overshooting the mark. So I, I think to me, that's what damage control resuscitation is now in conjunction with the surgery. It's, it's no volume, low volume, and slow volume approach in the, well, from the point of energy transfer to the point of control of hemorrhage to the point of returning them to hemodynamic sufficiency. And the investigators you named, uh, Dr. Maddox, Dr. Holcomb, their work was based mostly on penetrating trauma. How much of what you explained applies to blunt trauma? Yeah, I think, I think, you know, I hesitate to say with, uh, without any qualification whatsoever that I think it applies c uh, completely, but I think in hemorrhagic shock model, it probably is very applicable. And then it makes a tremendous amount. So the difference is now having worked 10 years in a rural environment after the early years working in, a, in an urban environment where the injuries were mo mostly penetrating, and now I see mostly blunt injury. The bleeding that, that's occurring as a result of blunt injury occurs on a more slow basis. And because of, you're in a rural environment and that bleeding is occurring over a longer period of time, there clearly must be some physiologic differences that occur between the two. In one instance, instance you have a very rapid rate of hemorrhage and declination of blood pressure. In the other, it's, it's more slow. It's, it's, a, it's a slower declination. So whereas the physiology must be different, at this point, I think, at least from my own level of, uh, of understanding and sophistication, I would say, well, there probably are, are the information is transferable. And so you know, here you are the chairman of surgery. So when someone rolls into your trauma bay, you have espoused anyway with your nursing staff and your other physician colleagues that you guys do not start a two-liter resuscitation to jack the blood pressure right back up again. That's correct. Absolutely. Um, and... And I think there are some interesting caveats. I mean, certainly head injury creates uh, a, an interesting conundrum where you, in, in that circumstance, you'd like to, to maintain through perfusion pressure. pressure. 
Um, you, you would not necessarily want to te- tolerate a mean arterial pressure of, say, 60 or lower um, because you'd like to be able to push that up a little bit to, to maintain more um, efficient um, um, you know, oxygenation and circulation of, of brain cells. So what do you do in that situation? You have to sort of sit in between. Um, if we think there is something that can be stopped, if there's bleeding that can be stopped in the operating room, we're leaving those patients hypotensive until we get there. If they have head injury and we're heading there, we're playing the game in between. We're not treating just the brain injury. We're not treating, we're not considering only the need for permissive hypotension. We're playing that in between. And that's where we are at the moment, and that's probably the best that I know to do. A lot of um, people spend a lot of time talking about the ideal fluid to give. We, thus far, you've talked about the volume and the rate. Let's talk about the type. And we can talk about LR is pro-inflammatory and saline has a lot of chloride in it and albumin is bad for you if you have TBI and hypertonic is immunomodulatory. Mm-hmm. It just goes on and on. Is there any aspect of damage control resuscitation in terms of the type of fluid to be infused? Or is that not something that we really have much information on? I think we have a huge amount of information on it. I think people have built their careers around it. I think I think we've got more things and in, in, we've got more uh, peer-reviewed publications on this topic uh, than we do on many topics. But I can also tell you at this point, I don't have the first clue what we should do. Uh, I do know for a fact that um, if we're to group studies into lots of fluid, the studies are available right now, lots of crystalloid versus little crystalloid, I think little crystalloid wins. Whether that little crystalloid is 3% uh, you know, hypertonic saline or some other concoction, whether it has dextran or not, it, it, it wins. Um, in the current paradigm. That's new in the last decade. Uh, so I would say, you know, a lot of crystalloid, a lot of anything that is not a component in nature is probably a bad thing. Uh, I would say that things that are component in nature and delivered in a directed fashion so that you're giving what actually is needed, and this is a big play for, for point-of-care testing using thromboelastography or other methods, I think that probably is something we should be doing. The centers that um, are participating in risk stratified uh, benchmarking outcome studies look like they're perf- outperforming other stent- uh, other centers, and what they have that some of these other centers don't have is they have a more standardized approach to resuscitation using these principles, and so they they look like they're reducing mortality and they're winning the game um, on the basis of their reduction in variation in resuscitation. So I, I think I think we have some overarching concepts. We have some some ideas of, of what where the buckets are, what the, what the big categories are, and what what should happen within those categories. But in terms of being able to um, uh, endorse a particular resuscitation fluid, I think it's pretty difficult to do, even with the the plethora of data that's out there. So you think that the next step of the concept of damage control resuscitation is going to be more of a goal directed rather than a protocol directed uh, paradigm? Yeah, I think that's definitely that's a great way to put it, and I'm never I've never quite thought of it that way. Uh, you know, we know that the Resuscitation Outcomes Consortium is uh, they've got their BLAST trial that's going on right now that's looking at you know point of care testing. They've got the Proper trial that's out there that's looking at one to one to one resuscitation, um, and we know that we have evolving technologies. You know, using using TAG. Uh, to help direct component therapy. That's something at my own center we're just starting to use. We're just learning how to respond to those curves. Um, and I think that uh, tailoring the um, 
resuscitation to the patient is is the best that any of us could hope to do, yet I know we're still a long way from it. So let's go back again a bit to your paper on damage control laparotomy, abbreviated laparotomy, to, uh, to control hemorrhage and contamination. That, to date, has never been validated prospectively, although certainly it has become standard in the trauma community. Now we see novel applications like one-to-one and TEG-driven, uh, goal-directed resuscitation, etc. These are starting to become broadly accepted into practice without prospective validation as well. Is there a role for such trials, or does one draw the line and say a retrospective study or a number of studies is sufficient and we should just go with it? You know, I think, um, I would like to think the purest in me, the purest in me would like to think that there's always a role for a prospective randomized controlled clinical trial. Um, I sit in the audience at the major academic meetings like everyone else, frustrated, seeing the next univariate analysis that identifies some differences that then plugs those into a multi, you know, multivariate analysis and a logistic regression to tell us what the odds ratios are. That's the best that humans can do with retrospective data, and we do it. I'd love to see us be able to design clinical control clinical trials for all those things. But what surgeons do in reality is when something resonates and makes sense to them, if it resonates to their surgical soul, you can't stop them from doing it, no matter what. Let's take laparoscopic surgery, for example. Laparoscopic cholecystectomy took off like wildfire without one study, without one thought. All those studies were done after the fact. I want to put my own paper from now almost 20 years ago. Hard to believe it's been that long, but it has. That was the eighth paper that I wrote. Um, I did it with lots of mentorship from my own group, from Don Carter, Bill Schwab, and others, and with lots of support from other people across the country, Tom Scalia, Dave Feliciano, and others. It was really effectively in the, in the study group a 23-patient study with uh, 23 in the control group and 23 in the study group. And it just, I knew at the AAST that year, the moment it was given, it took off like wildfire. There was not going to be any stopping it because, number one, a lot of people were already doing it. Number two, it resonated with the surgical soul. So I don't think those trials will ever take place. Now, to turn to your question about about non-trauma applications, that's been happening since the mid-1990s got communications from people across the country, across the world, literally saying, hey, I had a ruptured abdominal aortic aneurysm, and let me tell you what I did. I put in temporary conduit, I closed the abdomen, I resuscitated them for six hours, and then I went back and did the tube graft. Um, Just reviewed a paper out of New Zealand of 42 patients who were non-trauma applications of damage control. These were patients who had intestinal ischemia, bleeding from non-trauma causes, abdominal sepsis reporting almost exactly the same outcomes relative to abdominal, uh, intra-abdominal uh, uh, collections after a 75% uh, abdominal wall closure rate before discharge. Th- this data is re- remarkably similar to the trauma patient population. I don't think the clinical trials are going to be done there either. I think uh, because it is a primary approach to altering physiologic, dera- to, to intervening on physiologic derangement, as much as it is a, an approach to intervening on anatomic derangements for whatever reason, I think it's going. It's it's here to stay in some form um, for years to come. I would predict as resuscitation approaches, be, the our resuscitation approach becomes more um, 
uh, refined and we learn more about the physiology of resuscitation, we'll see less damage control and less com- and that would be victory. That would be a great thing. What about applying these concepts to different patient groups? Does it matter elderly, young? Yeah, you know, we've investigated the elderly patient population and the outcomes were remarkably good. Um, you know, it really surprised me in the early days when I was out pontificating on the circuit and we could ask that question and didn't have any data, I'd say, you know, I doubt that it's really going to be beneficial in patients who don't have much physiologic reserve. Our own data demonstrates that the outcomes are reasonably good and they're not all that different than the younger patient population. So now, it, it, with the studies that, that we've been involved in, was that a ringing endorsement for, the, for using it in elderly patients? I think it, you still have to be highly selective. And we know that our approach to elderly injured patients is very dependent on the culture in which that care is delivered. Um, as a surgeon working in the South now, very different than what we do in the Northeast on the basis of the family's wishes. So I think you still have to selectively apply. Uh, but because, you know, physiologic age and chronologic age don't have a lot to do with each other, it's pretty hard to, to come up with hard, fast cutoffs as to who not to do it in elderly patients. And, and I know there's really no data here, but really uh, just based on your expertise, um, do you think it, we should be applying permissive hypotension to an elderly person or do we just bag the kidneys if we do that? You know, um, I, I, could, I could give you a swag answer, but I won't. You know, I honestly think that you just don't know uh, because you don't know if that 70-year-old has a creatinine of 1.0 or that 70-year-old has a creatinine of 3.2. And uh, as my uh, partner and friend Don Carter always used to say, when you don't know what to do, you do what you know how to do. So um, elderly patients in our institution are treated as very similar to young patients that have two competing priorities. If you've got somebody with a head injury who's exsanguinating in their abdomen, we play that in between. With our elderly patients, we play it in between. And I think you already, you already answered this, but getting to the emergency uh, general surgery patient, not the trauma patient, the odds are when they call us on the uh, acute care surgery side, whatever you want to call it, the patient is uh, hypotensive from septic shock, much more likely than hemorrhagic shock. How does one go about resuscitating septic shock from just a volume resuscitation perspective? Yeah. You know, so because of the nature of septic shock, it's fundamentally distributive shock, it's, it's, it's a vascular space problem. And so I think, you know, uh, in septic shock, you know, our tendency is going to be to give uh, a little bit more crystalloid to try to fill that tank, but also to make sure that the red cell mass is where it needs to be. Uh, and so in, in, I think the, the, the question is, do the principles of one-to-one-to-one resuscitation or the principles of no volume, low volume, and slow volume and hemorrhagic shock apply to distributive shock. Uh, and, and I think, you know, number one, the jury is still out. There is no data. Uh, but number two, I'll tell you, we are really limiting crystalloid in those patients until we get source control. And we're treating source control uh, similar to, uh, to hemorrhage control. Uh, and, uh, and, and once we think we have control of, uh, of the infectious source, then we're trying to do a measured u- uvolemic resuscitation but in this case, of course, uh, adding uh, vasoactive agents to help us along the way. And kind of taking that motif now, just spinning it a little bit, I was uh, recently giving a Grand Rounds talk to our pulmonary critical care uh, group. 
And um, the Grand Rounds talk I gave was on uh, damage control resuscitation and the concept of one-to-one, et cetera, all of which really is based in large, large part on the war, as you mentioned, Dr. Holcomb and uh, the rest of the um, uh, military colleagues. And the medical intensivist said, how well do these concepts translate over to our medical ICU where we see massive GI bleeding, chemotherapy-related coagulopathic bleeding, other quote-unquote medical disorders? So how well do they translate? Yeah, I think it's a great question, and honest answer is I don't really know. And I think we're still going to have to sort through that. You know, our colleagues in medicine have been a lot more conservative with crystalloid resuscitation than we have over the years. Uh, standing a uh, uh, rib uh, a jibe from one side to the other has always, you know, been about how much fluid we give and how little they fluid, how little fluid they give. Um, so. I think that, that if the pendulum is swinging towards giving less crystalloid in all forms of shock, and I don't know that it is, but if it, if it is, they would be ahead of the game because they've, they've resuscitated with far less crystalloid volumes because they deal with patients who have more comorbidities, who, who don't have the same left ventricular function, they can't tolerate the large volumes that we've always uh, given them. And whereas we've always accused them of having much higher rates of renal failure, they always accuse us, accuse us of having much higher rates of respiratory failure. So... Um, honest answer is I don't really know, and I think uh, it's going to be an interesting question that we I hope I can see unraveled during the rest of my career. And ultimately, that's kind of what I told them as well. I said, you know, this really is uh, a ripe field for research in the medical intensive care unit because the surgical intensive care unit in this regard, I think, is ahead of them in large part because of the war and the opportunity that the war presented to advance our own field. And because we always, we try never let data get in the way of a decision. <laughs> you know, then there's always that, right? So. <laughs> Well, this has been an outstanding discussion on damage control resuscitation, which really was the next step after uh, damage control laparotomy. Um, I really would very strongly encourage the listeners to pull Mike's article, which I uh, referenced at the beginning of the talk. It is an excellent overview for uh, what this whole paradigm is and how to go about uh, implementing it. And I think there's plenty of data there that suggests it um, not only decreases morbidity, but more importantly, perhaps it decreases mortality. We've been speaking today with Dr. Mike Rotundo regarding the new face of damage control. Uh, I would like to thank you again for taking the time uh, to come down and uh, speak with us about this uh, ongoing evolution and treatment paradigm. This concludes another edition of the East TraumaCast. For copyright information and disclaimers, please visit us at east.org. For the Eastern Association for the Surgery of Trauma, I'm Dr. Bob Axarani.